Welcome. I'm Warren Odess Gillette, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Tara Jabari on February 8, 2022. For over 10 years, Tara has worked in all aspects of digital media, from videos, social media, to podcasting. Working as a podcast producer, she has connected experts and entrepreneurs with podcasters to promote and educate listeners across the globe. In her work, she has told the stories of people escaping persecution and violence, inventors and entrepreneurs in the East and West, and the influence of youth working on community building all over the world. One of the podcasts she worked on is called Baha'i On Air, which is an extension to the original New Zealand YouTube series Baha'i On Air. Tara has also started an individual podcast initiative entitled Who Is She?, featuring the stories of Baha'i women historical figures. I started the interview by asking Tara where she grew up and what was religious life like growing up. I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. Both sides of my family, mom and dad, were fourth-generation Baha'is who were born and raised in Iran. My dad came here for school, and then during the Iranian Revolution, which was particularly hostile towards Baha'is, both my parents were outside of the country, so they were getting a call from their parents saying, you can't come back to Iran, stay where you are. And so they ended up staying in the United States. And because we came from mostly a Baha'i family, there is something called independent investigation of the truth that is encouraged by Baha'i families to do, which means that you are never born a Baha'i. For instance, if you come from a Baha'i household in particular, you are encouraged to investigate, research all the other different religions and philosophies and thoughts. And then at the age of 15, you decide if you really want to be a Baha'i yourself. We had a Sunday school and I was bullied in Sunday school, mm, Baha'i Sunday school. That's terrible. Coming from a Baha'i household and family, no one is perfect. So principles of no backbiting. I heard comments of, oh, I can't stand that person. All sorts of things that everyday Baha'is and non-Baha'is say. Mm -hmm. So when I turned 15, it wasn't really the principles of equality between men and women, abolishment of all prejudice things like that, that's just, to me, and for most people, it's common sense, it's being a good human being. So I didn't feel I was a Baha'i, because to be a Baha'i means, first and foremost, that you believe in God, and that you believe that Baha'u'llah is the most recent prophet or manifestation to help humanity, right? Mm -hmm. And that is where... I didn't understand it. I didn't know if there was a God. Hmm. All of these things that we were being taught in Sunday school, in school in general, of what is right, what is wrong, 
don't steal, don't cheat, don't lie, all sorts of stuff. It, it made you a good person. So at 15, I was like, I don't think I'm a Baha'i. The other thing about growing up in Chicago is that in the Chicago suburbs in Wilmette, probably about 20, 30 minutes away from downtown Chicago, is the Baha'i House of Worship, which is the only one in North America. And so growing up there, we would volunteer, we were guides. My mother still does the floral decorations there, floral arrangements. Many people, non-Baha'is, just loved the Baha'i House of Worship. If you've never seen it or if you've never been, Google it. It's beautiful. I'm biased. I think <laughs> it's the most beautiful. There really are only nine continental Baha'i houses of worship, and the only one in North America is in the Chicago suburbs. So I grew up there. And then particularly as I was growing up and I'd be a guide, you know, just directing people of where the bathroom is and all sorts of stuff, new Baha'is would come. And it was somewhat like a pilgrimage. For them, it was a really big deal. They became Baha'is and they came to the Baha'i House of Worship of North America. And something in their eyes, they were just so happy to be there. And they were truly they're like, I'm a Baha'i. This is what I believe in. And this is the only house of worship I have for me in this continent. And so when I turned 15, coming again from a Baha'i household, I was like, yeah, I don't have that spark, that thing that I see in a Baha'i's eyes, particularly someone who's found the faith and has become a Baha'i. So both my parents accepted it. My mother was very, she was like, I'm not worried at all. My father was hurt. Both of them were like, all we ask you is to continuously investigate and research and just don't let go of your spiritual education, just as like how you're still going to college and still working in your schoolwork and work and things like that. This is also very important. I kept that up and then at 24, I basically realized I was a Baha'i because again, the first thing you need to know as a Baha'i is that you believe in one God and that Baha'u'llah is the latest prophet or manifestation and you believe in all the other manifestations before him. And that is when I became a Baha'i. So what are some of the other manifestations that came before him? We believe in Abraham, Moses, Krishna, Buddha, Muhammad, Jesus, I went out of order, Zoroaster, the Bab. He is a twin manifestation of the Baha'i faith. The Bab and Baha'u'llah are really the founders of the Baha'i faith. When you were going through this spiritual questioning, you were still a guide at the House of Worship? Yes. So that's an interesting paradigm for me. What put you in that place where you were mm -hmm. a guide at a house of worship, yet you were questioning your relationship yeah. with the Baha'i faith? They're always understaffed. The joke is anytime I've been able to visit a Baha'i house of worship, I've seen the one in Australia, the one in Germany. The joke, I always go, I'm like, where's the bathroom? Because that's the number uh. one question we always get asked. Because my mother worked there as the floral designer. I was always there behind the scenes, you know, like we were in the sort of like a storage area where they kept her work so she can do the flowers for the auditorium and things like that. 
The one in Chicago is the second most visited Baha'i house of worship in the world after the one in New Delhi, India, which is also known as the Lotus Temple. But thousands of people visit the house of worship. Often they just want to see, you know, how beautiful it is. I'd like to put this on record. The auditorium, we ask you, please do not take videos or photos inside the auditorium. Anywhere outside in the visitor center and the gardens, you can take as many photos as you'd like. But the auditorium, we ask you not to. The auditorium is the very top part, which is where people will go and pray. We are also right next to the beach, to the Lake Michigan. So sometimes people, without realizing, they'll come in their swimsuits, but it's like no shirt, no shoes, no service kind of thing. We're like, you're more than welcome to come, but please come back more dressed. I was growing up there and I saw that they always needed help. And I knew most of the answers to the questions, right? They're like, what is this? What is the Baha'i faith? How was it founded? Who founded it? What do you guys believe in? That kind of, I could easily answer those and they needed help. And it was a nice thing to be of service and to help the community out however I can. And at 24, it was your realization that Baha'u'llah was one of these manifestations of God that yes. that had you decide that you yes. would be a follower of the Baha'i faith? I wasn't a Baha'i, but when I graduated from college at 21, 22, I started working for the United States Baha'i National Center in their audiovisual unit. It's part of the communications department. One of the people who works at the communications she invited everyone to her house for dinner because we had a huge meeting. So we went to her house for dinner and her husband, Edward Price, was there. And I heard him talk about how a lot of people will say, how can there be a God who asks of Abraham to sacrifice his son? Like, what kind of God asks that? And he said, well, but most people don't also acknowledge that at the time, 4,000 plus years ago, that people were sacrificing their children left and right. And when Abraham found out there was really only one God, not multiple gods and goddesses or anything, it's not polytheistic, it's monotheistic, in order for him to prove that he will follow this monotheistic deity to sacrifice your son that you've always wanted. And then at the last second, God says, do not sacrifice your child. I wanted to see that you would actually believe me and do what I ask of you wholeheartedly. But what I want you to tell everyone now is stop sacrificing your children. Do not sacrifice a human being, right? Mm -hmm. Before that point, people were sacrificing their actual children because there was a drought and then they wanted rain. So they'd sacrifice a child and all that stuff. So he's like, no one talks about a, that was a common practice. B, that he stopped Abraham at the last second, and C, that he said, now teach everyone to stop sacrificing your children. Thousands of years later, we think it's barbaric and it's ridiculous. That shows progressiveness of how humanity learned how to live properly, basically, and to help an ever-advancing civilization. So I heard that, and I started talking to him. Dinner was closing, and everyone was starting to leave. And Ed asked me, so are you a Baha'i? And I said, actually, I'm not, but I come from a Baha'i family. And he goes, may I ask you why? And and just the same what I just told you. And he said, well, if you'd like, you and I can go over 
the holy text, there's many, many books in the Baha'i faith, as well as other religious holy scripts, so that you can get an understanding, because as to your point, you're only a Baha'i first and foremost when you believe in God and in all the prophets, right? Mm -hmm. And that's where you're getting stuck. You don't even know if there's such a thing. So might as well learn about it. And I said, if you don't mind, he's like, I'd be happy to. So for about four or five months, every week, we read mostly Baha'i books that did talk about religious history. So World Order of Baha'u'llah, some answered questions, and then one book called the Kitab Iran, or the Book of Certitude, and a few other books. The Kitab Iran was written by Baha'u'llah, founder of the Baha'i faith, and the other books were written by experts. But they kind of talk about the history of religion, who is God, what is God, what are the prophets, why are they here? And then that's when it clicked. And like five months later, I was like, oh my gosh, yeah. That's when I became a Baha'i. And so I call Ed my spiritual father. And it's no disrespect to my own father or my own parents or anything. They definitely raised me spiritually in all other aspects. But if somebody had taught you the faith, we sometimes acknowledge them and use the expression spiritual parent. Tara, you mentioned you went to university. What was your academic focus there? I went to Bradley University in Peoria, Illinois, and studied electronic media. It was the understanding of the cameras and audio and producing and directing and editing, mostly news pieces, the documentaries, films, things like that. That's how I ended up working at the Baha'i National Center of the United States for two years. And then after I became a Baha'i, I also was still looking for work, but I wanted to live abroad, and I ended up working for the media services of the New Zealand Baha'i National Center. And then I came back for graduate school and I went to Georgetown University and I studied a master's in communications, culture, and technology. And I understand one of your academic projects was monitoring organizations' social media for up to two or three mm -hmm. months. What organizations did you monitor and what were you looking for and what did you find when yeah. monitoring the social media? That was a great class to see how we used social media, the pros, the cons. Some people did their family businesses, others did corporations and everything in between. I personally chose HBO to see how often do they post, do they ever acknowledge a comment. I direct message DM'd them a question about an HBO original movie that was made in like 99, 2000, and it was not available on their streaming service. What was interesting is a couple months later, it was now available on the streaming service, but they never acknowledged my DM. So my theory is that they saw it, but they were like, we don't have time to talk to this little Tara girl. And then the pros and the cons of that, like, yes, you have millions of followers, but we take notice of this as well. But if, let's say, Sarah Jessica Parker sends you a note, you publicly acknowledge that note because she is the star of one of your hit television shows and films, right? So it was the pros and the cons of that and the ethics of it. Smaller family businesses, like a restaurant, 
they would get a bad review. Should they delete the review? Should they acknowledge that review? How do you moderate it and work around that? So that was what our studies were doing because this is relatively new in the last decade or so. So people weren't really sure how much they should use social media and what they should ignore, right? So that was what the class was about. And now you had mentioned that you had lived in New Zealand for a while to Mm -hmm. work with the Baha'i Center there. I guess you also traveled to Spain, England, and Colombia? Yes, I love traveling. (laughs) (laughs) What was the impetus for you traveling to those places, and what was your experience? I really like traveling. Part of it is because my parents, particularly my mother, never really able to go back to Iran. My mother was actually in Paris studying when the Iranian Revolution happened. So for her, her second home is France. And so every year we used to travel to Paris. Growing up in America, it's quite staggering how many Americans don't actually have passports. And even though we're a melting pot, in my area where we grew up, it was very rare that a person spoke another language. Now, in our family, we spoke Persian and English, and a bit of French. I was more aware of that, and my closest friends when I was growing up, one was Romanian Christian, one was Filipino Catholic. We were all first-generation Americans. We kind of like absorbed different cultures and things like that. And so I just liked learning languages. I liked learning how people lived differently. In graduate school in particular, my program was very international. It was like 80% foreign exchange students. I was able to go visit Spain because one of my classmates, Jaime, who's from Spain, and his wife, Francesca, was from Italy. They moved back to Madrid. And I said, can I come visit you, but then leave my luggage and take a couple solo trips around Spain? So I took a 10-day solo trip, and I went to Barcelona, Sevilla, Granada, and Madrid because I had a good connection there. I knew two people who spoke the language. There is a program called Remote Year that I found out, which is if you worked remotely, you would live in a new country each month of the year. So I said, yeah, why not? And it was about two years because... I was sort of a freelancer and sometimes would go in the office every once in a while. But then by 2019, end of 2019, I was like, I'm always at home working. So I packed all my bags, put everything in storage. And January 2020, I left and I moved to Colombia and we were going to go all over. By six weeks into the program, COVID hit. (laughs) We were in Mexico City at the time, so it was easy for us to get back to the States. But I'm still not done living this kind of nomad lifestyle, and I have really good credit with Remote Year. And I've done it with a couple of other travel programs where they take care of your living arrangements and your shared workspace and even pick you up from the airport and stuff. And they have a local team. So I was living in Greece with another travel program called Sojourn. Our local team, they would be there to translate things, or if we had a question of where to get this or that, they were always helpful. That's what I've been doing so far. 
since 2021, basically, I continue to do that. What kind of remote work did you do? I started getting more and more work, not in editing videos or producing stories, but in social media marketing. For the most part, I work with nonprofits and NGOs on their social media marketing, but I also help with their editing videos and things like that. And then in the last several years, I also started working heavily with podcasters, finding guests, and now I'm switching to getting people who want to get on podcasts because they have an expertise or a service or a product, but they don't know how to. So I'm becoming like a booking agent podcast producer. So I do a little bit of everything in digital media. Tara, you produced two episodes on the persecution of the Baha'is in Iran. Mm. It was a series called Baha'i on Air. Tell us about this series and your episode on the persecution of the Baha'is in Iran. Baha'i on Air is a television show that airs around the South Pacific, and it is based in Auckland, New Zealand. It was part of the New Zealand Baha'i National Center, and it's been going on for over 25 years. So part of my work for a year in New Zealand was to edit episodes for Baha'i on Air. And one of those was an interview we did with the Mahmoudi sisters. At the height of the Iranian revolution, right before it, right around it and after it, it was one of the worst persecutions of Baha'is in Iran with absolutely no repercussions. Their parents were two people who were persecuted and we assume murdered. Their father, we never found out what happened to him. He was part of the Baha'i National Spiritual Assembly of Iran. Because the Baha'i faith has no clergy, instead have sort of governing bodies that help us, but they're not our clergy. We have a local spiritual assembly, which is nine members in like a city or an area, and then a national spiritual assembly, which is for the whole country, and then a universal house of justice. Each of these are nine members. So for instance, there's a local spiritual assembly of, of Chicago, and a local spiritual assembly of Los Angeles and so forth and so forth. But there's a national spiritual assembly of the United States. In, uh, I think it was 1980, the Mahmoudis, the husband, Mr. Mahmoudi, was part of the national spiritual assembly of Iran. The assembly members were kidnapped, taken somewhere, and we still don't know what happened to them. We assume that they were killed and put in an unmarked grave, the chances of them being kept somewhere are very low. Now, because this happened, there was a second National Spiritual Assembly organized, and their mother, Jinus Mahmoudi, was in that, and she was also kidnapped by the like Ayatollah's army, put in prison, and killed. So they know what happened to her. So the persecution of Baha'is in Iran, a two-part series that I was able to edit and somewhat help produce. The daughters, they had three children, two daughters and a son. The two daughters were in New Zealand, and we were able to interview the daughters 30-odd years after their parents' murders. 
to explain why did this happen, what happened, and how has it affected them since. And just a little bit more of a history lesson. So that was what the two-part episode was really about. And it was really powerful. And it was really sweet to talk to the Mahmoudi sisters. They said, please don't make this a pity story, right? Mm. Yes, our parents were killed. We don't know where our father's body is. We were forced to pay for the bullets that shot our mother. You know, all sorts of horrible things. Years later, they found out, for instance, Mrs. Mahmoudi, she was in prison and she was a scientist of some sort and she was teaching in the prison. And a woman who was not a Baha'i who was in prison for some other crime, she was taught by Mrs. Mahmoudi. And years later, she got out of prison. She wrote a book and she acknowledged this Baha'i woman, Jinus Mahmoudi, who taught me, who inspired me to continue my education after prison and has led me to writing this book. You know, these kinds of connections, like, so as much as it's heartbreaking, there was also hope because our mother was still teaching and helping people, even in prison, show the hope and the perseverance that we have, right? So mm -hmm. that's like an example. So that was what the two-part episode really was and, and how we can stop the persecution today which is talking about it and keeping the Iranian government accountable that you have signed the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights and the fact that you are persecuting by keeping Baha'is from education, from owning a business, you're denying their human rights solely because of their religion, which is against the Human Rights Declaration. And because of a public outcry and a public attention worldwide from New Zealand, from the United States, from France, from everywhere, we were able to stop the killings. There's still persecution going, but not as severely as it was before because no one was really finding out about it. So that's what the show was about. And you created a podcast called Who Was She? I understand it's a podcast where there are stories of women throughout Baha'i history. So I'm curious, what inspired you to start this podcast? Who was she? So it first started when I was in New Zealand. I was able to meet with a former Universal House of Justice member. Again, we don't have a clergy, but the Universal House of Justice is a very important institution that the Baha'i faith has. His name was Hartmut Grossman. He's now passed, but he was visiting in 2013 in New Zealand when I was there. He was telling the story of Baha'is during World War II. A woman named Lydia Zemanoff, whose father invented the language Esperanto. She grew up right after World War I, started traveling through three continents, mostly by herself, to teach Esperanto. When World War II broke out, there were many attempts to save her life because she did come from a Jewish background. During her travel, she became a Baha'i, but there were spies involved. And I was like, this is what movies are made out of. You got mm -hmm. World War II. You got the Holocaust. You got a strong female character. You all this. So I started learning more. There is a book about her. I read the book and all sorts of stuff. 
A couple of times I got close to getting it made through different producers. Some were Baha'is who were of some wealth and, and were interested and, and some were not. And stuff. But it's very, very difficult to get a film made. So after a while, around 2019, I was like, this has been on my mind for over five years. Why not? Now that I've worked with podcasters and it was starting to grow more and more as a legitimate form of media, what if I made it into a podcast? Because podcasting is very inexpensive, but there is challenges to it too, because now it's all an audio medium to tell a story. I consulted with some people and some, and so I decided to make it into a podcast all about Lydia's life. And then because I enjoyed that process, it was very collaborative. The podcasting world is a lot less dog eat dog world and are happy to like collaborate and like you come on my podcast and I mm -hmm. come on yours or, you know, like we can promote each other and all sorts of stuff and open the window for a lot more exposure to share Lydia's story that I wanted to continue it. So what I did is I said, okay, I really enjoyed it. I studied basically storytelling. And lately, I haven't been doing that. I have been, in a way, social media is a storytelling form, but not the one that I was dreaming of as a little girl, right? Mm -hmm. But this was allowing me to go back to it. And it allowed me to find out more about amazing stories. So because it's really just me doing it, I said, okay, so I'll do it within Baha'i history, which is less than 200 years, that narrowed it down. And then I said, and I'll concentrate on women, that narrowed it down a little bit more, so I'm not too overwhelmed. Season one is about Lydia Zemnoff. Season two, which just came out, is about Zainab, who was one of the earliest believers in the Bab, who was the forerunner and one of the prophet founders of the Baha'i faith. At the time, it was called the Babi faith. I've been explaining it that she was sort of like a Joan of Arc figure in the history of Iran, Persia, and of the Baha'i faith. And then season three is on Hazel Scott, a very important jazz and classical pianist. And season four will be on Carol Lombard, who was the it starlet, big movie star. And the big thing that they had in common, other than they were women, was that they were Baha'is. And not a lot of people know about them. And it's super interesting. I learned a lot and I felt like other people will learn something out of it too. So that's why I started Who Was She? Tara, you're a digital media consultant. So what is the service you provide and to whom? Sure. I know how to edit videos. I know writing. Producing is really what I really like to do is connecting and finding the story. Digital media now encompasses more. You have vlogging and blogging and podcasting and influencers and this and that. When I graduated college, Twitter just came out. Instagram really wasn't an existent. YouTube was like the Times person of the year. So when we graduated as a millennial, they were like, figure this stuff out. I don't know what to do with it. We learned other ways to tell stories or to share information faster in the palm of our hands. So I call it 
digital media. And because I was always experimenting, I was like, okay, so we have a documentary that's 90 minutes. We need a trailer. Now for YouTube, we want to make it two minute clips. That's not a big deal. Now we have to make it into graphics. Now we have to do this. We have to do Instagram. We have to do Instagram stories. We have to do reels. We have to do TikToks. We have to do this. Now we have to translate into podcasting, all of that stuff. So now that is where my background is. And I found the most work working with nonprofits and NGOs and small businesses who want to reach an audience, a broader audience that they're not sure how to, because now there's billions of people online. There's a lot of noise. How can you stand out from that? So I've helped as a consultant to make sure people's voices are heard, their organization's voices are heard and reached. And how can people find you, Tara, so that they could enlist your help? I am on most of these things. Yes, I am. (laughs) Shocker. I know. Basically, on Twitter and on Instagram, I'm Tara underscore Jabari, T-A-R-A underscore J-A-B-B-A-R-I. And all of my profiles can be found on about.me slash Tara Jabari, who was she has a Pinterest, Facebook, and Instagram at who was she podcast. Feel free to reach out there, too. How would you say... Being a Baha'i guides you in your media consultancy work? By the time I graduated, the Me Too movement or cancel culture was just starting to pick up. But what I noticed is what we say and what we do, there is now a digital record of it that is very rarely, if ever, able to be erased completely. So it keeps us accountable and reminds us of our shortfallings and where we need to grow and do better 30, 40, 50 years from now. And it makes you more aware of how you want to not just be perceived, but how you want to speak to others. You know, like a tweet on Twitter, if you want to make a joke about something. So sometimes when you joke about something, you could be hurting someone else's feelings without intention. So before you put that out there, try and think of it from another person's perspective. In some research, empathy has gone lower, but I think we're going from one extreme to another where anyone could just do whatever they wanted privately and all that stuff and not worry about the consequences. And now everyone's sort of being caught with those consequences. There's going to be a balance eventually where you're more conscious of that, of how you portray yourself and do things online because you know that there's very, very little chance that it will be completely ignored or be forgotten. Somewhere there's always some sort of archive of it. So that's how I keep thinking of it. For instance, when I work with a a nonprofit that worked with child labor, they were trying to get kids out of child labor and to stop these factories from working. They got kids out of child labor and into schools. It's called Good Weave. We wanted to bring more just awareness that we exist. It's been going on for 20 plus years, but not a lot of people know about us and things. And they were going from rug making to teas and jewelry making, things like that, so that people who buy are more aware of, make sure that this was not made by children. They said, okay, 
first of all, any photo we put of children online, you know, we have release forms and all sorts of stuff, but they have to be smiling and they have to be in school. Of course, when a child is in school learning, you're not all smiles all the time. They're taking notes and stuff. Even if they're just sort of like a serious face or even looking bored, they're like, do not put it up there because we don't want that perception out there. We want to show that they're in school and they are learning and enjoying it. And don't show them when they were in the places where they were working in horrible conditions, dark, dingy, they were dirty, they were crushed on their hands bleeding from weaving the rugs and things like that. And we're like, we don't want that out there. We want to show the children learning, educated, and happy. Why? Because that was what we wanted out there online, right? We were just a lot more conscious of it for the 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now and the billions of people that it might be able to reach. We want to show this child going to school and happy about it, not their sad life before being able to go to school. This is what is making us accountable and more conscious of what we put out there in the world. And we're all still learning. I mess up all the time, but we are a lot more aware of what we're trying to say and learn from each other. I was just learning about this a term of toxic positivity, which is when you're having a bad day and people are like, look at the bright side, or there must be a reason for all this, you know, and they're saying it's toxic because you just need to be able to feel your feelings and all sorts of stuff. Now, a person who says, oh, chin up, it'll turn better later. They don't mean to downplay your hard times, but they don't know how to make you feel better. So this is how they feel it. You can do that more easily with comments or liking a post or something like that, not just verbally. So people are a lot more conscious of how we interact with each other. Some people are like, oh my gosh, I can't even tell you that the world will cheer up eventually. Like I can't even support you in that way. And I was like, no, I think people are just saying, I hear you, but also hear that a person is just having a really bad day and needs to be acknowledged for having a bad day. So it's giving us a way to have empathy grow as much as social media and digital media hasn't been able to. There has been studies that drastically went our levels down. I think it's picking it up. And we think more long-term of how we interact with people online because that's never going to go away. Even when you leave this world, you know, when you die, you still have a digital footprint. So how is that going to be a perception? That joke really hurt a lot of people's feelings. So did you really need to put that tweet out or could you have worded it differently? I find it interesting, your suggestion that one shouldn't post the child's dire circumstances before going to school, because I would think it would really move people to really want to support an organization that sees a picture of a child in a terrible child labor Mm -hmm, situation mm -hmm. juxtaposed with another picture of him or her going to school. But you're suggesting that that wouldn't be a good thing? It depends on each organization and each branding and all that stuff. But people are more responsive of positive images. Images are really attention grabbing. 
and we're getting it constantly while you're scrolling through your Instagram or you're just going through something, you are more inclined to want to pay attention to a smiling face than a crying face, for instance. We are feeling overwhelmed. People are being more drawn to positive impact than negative. Somebody wanted to bring awareness to their kidney failure. She consulted with me. She just wanted to bring more awareness about donations and all sorts of stuff. And she's like, every time I show myself in the hospital bed getting dialysis, which is a painful process, is a long, boring process, is terrible. People are like, oh, I'm so sorry for you. Or say, and that's not my intention. I just wanted you guys to know this is a process, but you've checked if you can donate your kidney to somebody else. That was my intention. I said, yeah, but that's not what people perceived, as you can see. Here's my suggestion. After you're done with your dialysis and you're just going walking in the park and you take a photo of a beautiful rose that you see in the park. And then in the caption, say, I just went from four hour dialysis. It was not fun, but I was able to find my strength to go walk home from the hospital. And I saw this beautiful rose and it reminded me of the beauty of the world. If you wanted to learn more about kidney failure and how you can help people who are suffering from this, check this website, try that, see how that plays out. Or share how you and your husband went to a nice dinner in the weekend after four days of dialysis or whatever it is. People are more responsive to that positive imagery than the negative one. And it loses its message. So if you saw a child crying, bleeding, if you feel helpless. So the thought behind Goodweave was they're less inclined to pay attention to us and to see if you donated money or to find out how can you make sure the rug that you bought was made good weave approved, meaning no child labor, all that stuff. Versus if you were scrolling and you saw a child raising their hand, super excited to answer a question the teacher asked, and then you see the caption and you're like, oh, they were in child labor, they got out, they're now in school. I do actually need to buy a rug or some jewelry. Where can I find out that it was approved by Goodweave. That was the thought process. And and more studies are finding that. Well, Tara, I want to thank you so much for sharing your work with us. It was very interesting. Thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Tara Jabari, digital media consultant. You can find this interview and other interviews on the website abahaiperspective.com and on the YouTube channel Abahai Perspective. You can also find the podcast on Spotify and iTunes. For information specifically on the Baha'i Faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org or you can call the number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
just beyond the basis Stages of doubt And rise And rise To the exhaust
Rise up, dear friend Like the strong branch of a tree Knowledge will bring you I will help guide you to the one Who will make all secrets Thank you.